We are back in the book of Acts. We've had a great six-week uh, diversion. Um, the Lord has led us away from the book of Acts for a while, but now we're back, and we're going to be back in Acts for several weeks. So, have you ever recently, have you recently had to fix anything at home? <laughs> I'm not sure why that was funny. <laughs> um, I got that letter from the insurance company for my house saying, unless you do ABC, we're not insuring your house again. I didn't think it was in that such bad shape, but apparently there was a pipe behind the washer that was about to burst. And they said, you better fix that. Now, I hadn't noticed. I mean, who goes behind the washer and checks the pipes, right? So sure enough, as I was loosening the connection, the thing just broke apart. So thank the Lord for insurance companies that look up these things. And so I had to go to Lowe's and buy a pipe and uh, replace it and, and connect it and turn the water on and look for leaks. And there weren't any leaks. And I looked repeatedly for several days. And now I'm done looking. I think it's fine. But, but that was an event, right? I, I, had, I had to go and fix something. Um, a few weeks ago, I was pulling a trailer down I-95, and I suddenly heard this noise, and I, and I look in my mirror, and there's tires flying everywhere, and one of the tires on the trailer had, had blown, and I had to pull over and disconnect the trailer um, and go and buy a wheel because they had a spare, but the spare was shot. Uh, wasn't my trailer, I was borrowing it, but I was kind of feeling responsible. Uh, and then I fixed it. It was an event that I fixed. Uh, and we, uh, we go from fixing to fixing to fixing, right? There isn't any connection, and, and life's like that because things break. Uh, and sometimes our body parts break, right? Uh, a tooth broke, breaks, and so you go to the dentist, and uh, it's painful both physically and in your wallet, <laughs> and you get the tooth fixed, and then it's done. <coughs> or you break a nail, and then you get it fixed. So it, hang on, no, no, no. Breaking a nail, no, 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 no. That doesn't get fixed with just one event, right? Oh my goodness, when you break a nail, ladies, hope you don't get mad with me, but it is a day-altering occurrence. You take a picture of it, you put it on Facebook, and then you get out your nail hardening and you curse it because it hasn't worked, and you up your vitamins, and then you don't just fix one nail, every nail has to get fixed, right? And you may even spend three hours in the nail salon. I jest. We sometimes take this idea of fixing into our spiritual lives. Jesus never said, come and let me fix you. Because our souls cannot get fixed like that. We don't come to church and suddenly everything's fine and we go back into a disconnected world and we think we've had a fix. We don't come and take communion for a moment and we celebrate and even with thanks and then go into a disconnected world. No, everything in our spiritual walk. There is no sacred and secular divide. 24-7, every day of the year, is walking with God. The problem with, with, with the fixing 
as if all our spiritual lives is going from fix to fix to fix, event to event to event, church, 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 and there's no real transformation that takes place in our lives, then what we really become are spiritual junkies. Because we're just coming to church for a fix. Unfortunately, that in many respects was the history of Israel. The history of Israel has these momentary times when, when the kings are faithful to God and the people are listening to the prophets and the messages, but there's long periods, decades, hundreds of years at times when, when there's just darkness. And I wonder if Israel never really understood that, that there's a transformational thing that needs to take place as we walk with God rather than just going to the temple to offer sacrifices and kind of checking off, I've done the event. I want to show you a picture. Um, I want you to reflect on that picture as I tell you about a book I read many years ago, and then I'm going to bring it back to that picture. Uh, a book was published in 1984. The first publishing of the book was, uh, the book was called uh, Man of Vision, Woman of Prayer. And a subsequent publishing of the book, the title changed to Days of Glory, Seasons of Night. Still the same book. It was written by a lady who wrote this very gut-wrenching autobiography about her life growing up in the home that she did. Her father was a well-known surgeon, earning a lot of money, famous surgeon, uh, godly man. She was raised in a home with godly parents. And one trip overseas, her father saw the horror and misery of, of starving children in Southeast Asia, and, and he came back to the States and he started a ministry aimed at feeding the hungry. And this ministry just blossomed and mushroomed. I remember as a young believer in the late 70s and 1980s uh, going through programs and, and, and things that this organization was encouraging us to do, uh, remembering and thinking of the hungry people around the world. And this ministry just, just was a huge success. And uh, the author of the book talks about her father being distant and being overseas a lot, and then problems started happening in their relationship, uh, especially her father and her mother. And eventually her mother and her father divorced. Uh, there were problems with the father's character issues, and eventually the ministry that he founded fired him. And she wrote this book, and the title was Days of Glory, Seasons of Night. It shouldn't have been like that. It should have been maybe seasons of glory, days of darkness, because we all, we all have those dark moments and those dark periods, but it shouldn't be like that for, for decades. But yet her life growing up was just categorized with days of glory, but seasons of night. And, and that title, you could actually put that title on the history of Israel. That they had these, these moments, these days, these short periods of glory, 
but yet there's these seasons of night and, and, and God in his redemptive plan for our world knew this was coming and so his, part of his plan to ransom us was to step into our world and come and die for us. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own rejected him. And for three years, Jesus poured his life into our world, ministered to us, and almost from day one, the religious leaders who, who we would think should have got it, they should have connected the dots, if they weren't so focused on, on just the sporadic events, they, for three years, conspired against Jesus and plotted against Jesus and bribed people to lie about him and then stirred up emotional crowds to condemn Jesus to death and kind of conned the Roman officials into executing Jesus. The very last public Statements that Jesus made are recorded in Matthew 23, where he denounces the religious leaders. If you'll just go back to that picture, please. Uh, he denounces the religious leaders. And I want to kind of put some context into this picture, and I'm going to need some poetic license here for a moment. If you'll just kind of walk with me in my thoughts and imagination. Jesus declares his last public comments about the nation of Israel. He's kind of denouncing the, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And the Bible tells us that Jesus leaves the temple. That discourse takes place in the temple. Jesus leaves the temple, crosses the Kidron Valley, goes up the Mount of Olives, and, and from then on is just private, him and his disciples, until his arrest. And, and Matthew 24, 25 is the Olivet Discourse that we, we call the Olivet, Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives. But that's private. And, 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 and so I kind of wonder, and, and this is where I need some, you know, some imaginative license, that as Jesus is leaving the temple, he's crossing the valley, he's going up the hill with his disciples, and he says to them, guys, will you just walk on ahead? I just need a quiet moment. Jesus did that many, many times. And he sits down and he looks over Jerusalem. And his heart is breaking. Because for hundreds of years, God has sent messages. And for the most part, they've been rejected. For hundreds of years, God has sent messengers, and for the most part, they've been rejected. And now God has come in the flesh, and Jesus knows within hours, the crowd is going to be baying for his blood. Looking over Jerusalem, and maybe he reflected back on the last words he said publicly. The very last words Jesus said publicly were these words. You can switch to that slide now. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stone those sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. Wow. See your house is left to you desolate. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I have warned you. How often I've sent people into your life to speak into it. How often I've put obstacles in your way to try and wake you up. How often I've wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. Whenever a hen senses that there's danger, a hen will kind of cackle. Do hens cackle? Flap their wings and the little chicks will come running, gather under the mother hen's wings. And I've seen this happen. A friend of mine raised chickens when I was growing up. And then the hen would kind of settle down and protect the chicks. And then you'd see a little head pop out. Look, and if it was safe, the chicks would come out. And Jesus is saying, how long I've wanted to, to, to protect you like that. But you are not willing. And then he makes those startling words. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Bible scholars think that these words were said maybe about 48 hours before Jesus' death. It could have been the, that day, the Thursday, as early as that. Literally within hours, 48 hours to maybe 10 hours, the curtain in the temple would tear from top to bottom, symbolizing the end of the sacrificial system. Forty years later, Rome would march into Jerusalem, flatten the city, flatten the temple, never to be built again. Why is that? Because God, doesn't, God isn't confined to temples. God lives inside of us. Right? Day after day after day, dark moment after dark moment, Great moment after great moment, God is with us 24-7. He dwells in his people. So this is kind of the theme we're going to follow for the next four weeks as we study Acts chapter 7. You with me? All right, Acts chapter 7. There are 53 verses that I want to cover this morning. We, we, how's the time there? We are going to fly through it. Uh, I'm going to read a lot of this, but not all of it. So if you'll just track with me. The church is about three to four years old by the time we get into Acts chapter 7. On two separate occasions, the religious leaders have dragged uh, church leaders in front of them to tell them, stop preaching in Jesus' name, and they refuse. A great opportunity that God allowed for them to hear again the message of Jesus Christ, and they resisted it. And then in chapter 6, we see this little problem within the church. Some of the Greek widows were not being taken care of properly, and uh, so they call a meeting, and they talk about it, deliberate, pray, 
And they elect seven men to take care of this problem. One of them is Stephen. We know nothing about Stephen. Uh, scholars say that he was probably Greek. Uh, Stephen is a Greek name. We don't know anything about his background, but from the context of Stephen's story here in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen is a godly man. He doesn't just go about taking care of widows. He is on fire for the Lord. And the religious leaders take exception to this. And for the third time, they drag someone from the church before them. And this time it's Stephen. It's Stephen. And they challenge him about his faith. And they have bribed people to, to come up with stories about him. We pick it up in verse 1. Oh, by the way, there's going to be four sections I'll just touch on very, very briefly. Uh, the patriarchs, uh, Moses, the temple, and then Christ. And then we'll wrap this up at the end. Um, first of all, the patriarchs, uh, verse 1. And the high priest said, now that high priest is probably Caiaphas. Um, the, the year, year is, is around 34, 35 B.C., I mean, AD, uh, G, uh, Caiaphas was, was high priest until about 36 AD. So the very person that resided over meetings to condemn Jesus is now challenging Stephen. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brother and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And I, after they shall come out and worship me in this place... And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. Now in Bible history, we, uh, we talk about three or four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Some Bible scholars think that Joseph, or they categorize Joseph in the same category as, as patriarchs. A patriarch is a male leader of an extended family clan. So those are the three or four patriarchs. Now, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, uh, and now that's talking about Joseph's brothers, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So part of God's story, and I'm calling this four-part sermon series His Story, Part of, part of God's story was to call Abraham, was to begin establishing a nation, a Hebrew nation, but then God wanted somewhere for the nation to grow. And God used adversity to do that. Does God ever use adversity to get a point across? To draw us down further along the path with him? And God uses the adversity of Joseph and Joseph's dreams about one day my brothers and parents are going to bow before me. Uh, and Joseph goes and shares the story with his brothers and they get mad and so they sell him into slavery and Joseph ends up in Potiphar's 
house. Potiphar is one of the top military guys in Egypt. And Joseph, the Bible tells us, Joseph was well-built and handsome. When I was 17, I would have been happy with just one of those qualifications. <laughs> Joseph has both. He's well-built and handsome. And, and Potiphar is probably out taking care of military stuff. And Joseph's um, boss's wife, we never know her name, but she kind of takes a liking to Joseph and entices him. And Joseph says, no, how can I do such a thing and sin against God? And one day, Joseph runs out of the house. Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him, and he runs out of, out of his house and leaves his coat behind. And he gets into huge trouble. A well-known Methodist preacher uh, by the name of David Siemens uh, back in the 70s and 80s preached on Joseph once a year, every single year. He preached the same message at a youth, um, a youth, uh, youth emphasis meeting in their church. And in that message, he said about Joseph running out of Potiphar's house, he said, it is better to lose a good coat than to lose a good conscience. It is better to lose a good coat than to lose a good conscience. It's better to lose a good friend than to lose a good conscience. It's better to lose a job opportunity than to lose a good conscience. God's story for us, God's plan for us, is that we would stay connected and engaged with him even through the difficulties. And we would, we would work for him even if we're working for a paycheck but we would work to the glory of God. And our pagan bosses, our non-Christian bosses might see that and recognize that and promote us as Potiphar did with Joseph. And then Joseph stayed true to his faith even though it got him into trouble. So Stephen is reminding the people in this court case about that episode in their history. Let's go on to the next section, Moses and the law. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose the infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now I'm going to flip through some of the slides just to save some time and get down to verse 36 if you're following me in your Bible. This man led them out, talking about Moses, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount, at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. That's talking about the law and the commandments. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol 
and we're rejoicing in the work of their hands. And I can just picture God saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, dear. Do you know what had happened just a few weeks before they got frustrated with Moses and thought Moses was taking too long and God's promises were taking too long? Where is the promised land? Where is this land that we're going to have flowing with milk and honey? Where is this Moses that's taking too long? Get Aaron, let's build a golden calf and let's think this golden calf can lead us back to Egypt. That should be better, right, than staying with the uncertainty sometimes, walking with God day by day. Do you know what happened just a few weeks earlier? The Hebrews are standing at the edge of the Red Sea. And they look behind them and the Egyptian army is coming. And they start getting fearful. And Moses says, stop. He says these words. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation, the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Did God show himself to Israel that day? They walk through the Red Sea and they look back and the Egyptian army is coming and the waters cover them up and drown. And then a few weeks later, you see this mindset of these episodes, these episodes. A few weeks later, they're tired, they're frustrated, they're uncertain, and they think, let's go back to Egypt. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who ignore the messages and the messengers I send you. Let's go on to the third section, the tabernacle and the temple. I'm actually not going to read this just for time's sake. Uh, Verses 44 through 50. In the wilderness, God gave instructions to build a tabernacle. Then later on through Solomon, they built a temple. But we know that God never is confined to a temple. Yes, God allowed the temple as a symbol of his presence, as a place that people could come and connect with God. But it wasn't just about those sporadic connections when you come and offer sacrifices or the annual events. It was supposed to be a lifelong connected journey. Saul is a typical example of this. God orders Saul to go into battle and defeat the Amalekites. And God said, destroy everything. And Saul destroyed everything except for a few people and animals. And Samuel came and challenged Saul on this. And Saul said, well, I kept some of the animals to sacrifice. Again, Saul's in his mindset, if I can just sacrifice to God, have this moment (laughs) that I kind of look good religiously then I'm going to get fixed. And God, through Samuel the prophet, says God wants obedience more than sacrifice. God wants your obedience more than he wants you in church attendance. God wants your obedience more than you coming forward to take communion. 
because it's 24-7, seven days a week. The last section deals with Christ. I'm going to read this, verse 51 through 53. Remember, Stephen is talking to these religious leaders. They're holding his life in their hands, his life in their hands. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, <laughs> uncircumcised in heart and ears. Next week and the following week, we will, we, will, we will deal with the covenants that are directly or indirectly referenced in Stephen's speech. And I'm going to talk about circumcision. Just, just kind of FYI, if you haven't had that conversation with your kids and they're in church over the next couple of weeks, you might want to. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's telling these religious men that you rejected God. In fact, your whole history is a history of rejecting God. And you've rejected him now. The Holy One, the Righteous One that came to deliver you, you rejected him. And what will they do with Stephen? What will they do with this messenger from God? They will reject him too. In our fourth Series in a fourth message in the series, we will look at the stoning of Stephen and we will ask that gut wrenching question why me? Why my baby? Why my husband? Why couldn't you stop that car? Why couldn't you stop that drunken driver? Why cancer? Why Stephen, this righteous man? But they will ignore him and reject him, drag him out of the city and stone him to death. About three or four years ago, I was on a senior trip to Washington in New York City. I love New York City for about three or four days. And we were standing on a platform in the subway and uh, one of our students is Michael Nixon. Is Michael here this morning? Michael, wave your hand. There's Michael. In fact, that almost that, in whole, that, uh, that whole row is the Nixon clan. Uh, Cynthia's the matriarch of the Nixon clan. Uh, if you ever need bodyguards for an event, the Nixons might be for hire. Right, I'm serious. Within that family, they hold 31 black degrees, black belts, in karate, jiu-jitsu, judo, Weapons. So, so if you ever need you know, bodyguards, there they are. Okay. <laughs> Cynthia works at the school, does a wonderful job in our finance office. Well, we're standing on this platform, and we're waiting for the train. And you know some of the platforms have six minutes, five minutes, and they count down. And I see this guy standing there, and he's leaning against a post, and he's, and he's making a mess of eating something. And it's disgusting. And the guy's drunk. And he's kind of swaying and he stops eating and, and, and he throws the wrapper away and he starts walking around the platform. Five minutes to train. 
and he's walking around, kind of staggering, and he walks towards the end of the platform and walks away. And I start thinking, if this guy goes towards the end of the platform when that train's coming, we're going to have a mess. Four minutes to train coming. So I look around and I grab Michael, thinking this guy's multiple black belt karate expert. If I need somebody with muscle and good f- reactions, I'm going to get Michael. So I say, Michael, come here. Stand here, Michael. This guy's drunk. And I'm concerned. Three minutes to train coming. If this guy moves towards the end of the platform and the train's coming, we are going to go after him. So Michael's with me, and we're standing there, and this guy's kind of staggering around the platform and staggering towards the end and staggering away two minutes to the train, and we're watching him. We're looking out for him. One minute to the train, and I look down the track, and there's a light coming, and this guy's standing there, and he's kind of staggering, and and Michael's staying with me, and I say, Michael, hang with me here. If this guy goes over, we're going to rescue him. And as the train's coming down the track, he, he makes a couple of steps towards the edge, of the, the edge of the platform, and I reached out and I grabbed his arm and pulled him away, and he pulled his arm away, it looked as if I was some kind of a pervert, pulled, and pulled his arm away, and he backed away from the train, and the train came, and he was okay. What's the point? God sees there's a train coming. God sees as there's a dark day coming. And it's six minutes, or six months, or six years, and God's sending people to get you away from the platform because you're too close. Because your life is not connected. Your life is just one episode after another episode, and during those disconnected episodes, you are vulnerable and you're spiritually weak, and God's sending messages and messengers for you to get away from the edge of the platform and some of you might not be listening because you're drunk in your religious events and God's saying get away from the track there's a train coming there's disaster coming get away from that relationship get away from that job get away from that crowd because there's problems coming and like Israel We ignore God's messengers and messages over and over and over again. And when the train hits us, we dare say, why me? What is God warning you about today? What is God raising red flags about your life today? And if you would be honest and look around, you would see people standing on the platform with you, looking out for you, trying to keep you away from disaster because that's the message that God has given them for you. But too often in our stubbornness, we'll pull our arms away and we'll go our separate way. And God says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this has been heavy stuff this morning.
right now the Lord is showing you things that he has warned you about that he is telling you get away from the edge of the platform get off that track stop doing that thing stop talking the way you talk stop that association don't apply for that job you know it's going to be a disaster spiritually whatever it is allow the Lord to to stir your heart this morning don't become a casualty of your own stubbornness We have prayer partners this morning. If you need someone to pray with, come forward on your left. Or if you want to pray alone, come forward on your right. Father, as the worship team leads us, Lord, I pray that you would, you would just do what you do best, Lord. Does that convict us and show us where we might be getting too close to the edge? Show us if our lives are disconnected, that we're not walking with you as we should 24-7. We know you, you dwell in our hearts, that you walk with us day by day. And even when those dark moments come, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't cause our eyes to turn from you, that we would stay engaged, even through the difficulty. Amen. Let's stand and worship, and you respond to the Lord as he leads you. Church, just a second. Just a second. I sense uh, the Spirit of God's doing something in the room right now. So what we're going to do is we're just going to wait on Him. And uh, JT is just going to keep playing. And whatever the Lord's saying in this moment, respond to that however you need to respond. Maybe it's gather around together with your family or with friends. Maybe it's come to the altars. Um, and when the Spirit says we're done with that, then we'll, then we'll sing together, but we're just going to be obedient to that right now, amen.
have on our schedule a song to sing right now, but sometimes the Lord has other things to say. So I'm going to wait just a little longer. If the Lord is speaking to you, respond.
Thank you, Lord. Give him praise. Give him praise. Do not leave this place if you still need to do business with God. Stay right here. Pray. Meditate. And then as you leave, go connected day by day, day after day, 24-7. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. 